welcome to this late hour, a three-part special of the Shroud of Turin. host, Casey Knowlton. The Shroud of Turin, a fourteen and a half foot long by three and a half foot wide linen cloth made with a distinct herringbone weave that bears the mysterious image of a battered and scourged man. This man also bears the wounds of crucifixion, puncture wounds on his wrists and feet, his head showing injuries from a cap of thorns. Many of the scourge marks appear to have come from a Roman flagrum, a terrible and gruesome instrument of torture used by the Roman Empire. This apparent burial shroud is also covered in human blood, blood containing high amounts of bilirubin, evidence that the man of the shroud suffered through excruciating torture. Could this be the image of Jesus Christ? In today's episode, we will hear the first of a two-part interview with professional photographer Barry Schwartz, who worked with the Shroud of Turin Research Project in 1978. Join me for the first part of this three-part special on the Shroud of Turin. Well, it is my great honor and privilege to welcome Mr. Barry Schwartz of the Shroud of Turin Research Project to this late hour. Mr. Barry Schwartz, how are you? I'm doing well, and thanks for having me on your podcast. Well, we're very glad to have you. So for those who are not familiar with you or your work, who is Barry Schwartz? Well, I am a professional photographer, um, a graduate of Brooks Institute of Photography way back in uh, 1971, before you were born. Um, and uh, <laughs> I operated a photographic studio in Santa Barbara, California for many years. And in the 70s, I was uh, contacted, uh, I think it was about 1975, I was contacted by a gentleman who worked for a, uh, a local company that was a contractor to Los Alamos National Laboratories. And uh, they had a project where they needed a photographic consultant, someone with darkroom skills, which, of course, in today's uh, world, that's kind of obsolete. But I had those skills. So for seven months, I worked on a project for Los Alamos that had to do with atomic bombs. And obviously, it was classified. So that's about all I can say about it. Mm -hmm. At the end of that seven-month period, the same gentleman who I'd worked with for that seven-month project called me again. And when you're self-employed, you know, you always hope that that next phone call is the next job. So he called me again and I said, oh, oh good, maybe another project. And he said, well, not exactly. He said, uh, what do you know about the Shroud of Turin? And, and I laughed, I have to admit, I, I laughed out loud and I said, but, but Don, I'm Jewish. And Don Devan, the gentleman who I'd worked with, uh, laughed also because he, he reminded me that he too was Jewish. And so... <laughs> You know, uh, he said, look, uh, he had participated in an experiment 
where a photograph of the shroud that was taken back in 1931 was put into a scientific instrument called a VP8 image analyzer, an 8-bit uh, analog device that you input an image with a black and white video camera, and it shows up on a green screen monitor. And the device then allows you to take the lights and darks of that image and stretch them into vertical 3D space proportionate to each other. And uh, although for many years, decades, uh, people had suggested that there might be depth or spatial or topographic information encoded into the shroud's image, they had no way of uh, proving that. One of the uh, great important uh, values of the VP8 image analyzer was that it demonstrated those 3D properties perfectly. It got the natural relief of a human form on that green screen display. And that for the first time verified that there was spatial or topographic information encoded into the image itself on the Shroud of Turin. So that was the significance of the VP8. It proved that there really was that data there. That was the first time a scientific instrument had shown that. Mm -hmm. And because these researchers, including my friend Don Devan, um, had, were interested in the Shroud, once they saw this, they said, look, let's see if we can put a team together and perhaps we can get permission to go there and try and determine how this image was formed. So that's why Don called me because we had just finished working that project and he knew I was a technically competent technical photographer. And so he said, look, they're going to put this team together. We're going to need a photographer. Are you interested? And initially I said no, uh, because I didn't feel comfortable. I was raised in an Orthodox Jewish home. Uh, my grandparents lived with us. Uh, my parents were both born in Poland, so I was first generation here, and I didn't really know much about Jesus other than he was Jewish. I knew that. <laughs> so, right. so I was a little hesitant, and, uh, but the more I thought about that image property, the more I realized that that's something you can't do photographically or artistically, and I thought, well, maybe I should do this, and then in the back of my mind, that little voice said, free trip to Italy. And so, <laughs> and so I said, okay, I guess I'll join the team. Well, several months later, as the team grew, and the team grew just the way I got on the team, somebody said, you know, we need a chemist. Let's call Ray Rogers at Los Alamos National Lab. So they called Ray, and he joined the team. And they said, you know, we need some other imaging people because this is about an image, so we need as many experts in imaging as we can get. They got a hold of Don Lynn at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena. He was head of imaging on Voyager, Viking, Mariner, and Galileo projects for NASA. And so he joined the team along with one of his colleagues, John Lohr. And Don Lynn was a good Catholic man. And a few months into it, after he had joined the team, we were having a regional meeting in California there. And again, I was thinking of quitting. And I remember saying to Don, this time Don Lynn from the JPL, um, gee, John, what's a nice Jewish boy like me doing on this team? And he looked at me and he said, well, apparently you've forgotten that the man in question is a Jew. And I said, no, I, I knew that. And he says, oh, so you don't think God wants one of his chosen people on our team? Well, I laughed. I said, well, no, I never thought that at all. And he gave me perhaps what is the best advice I've been given in my entire life. He said, listen, stop complaining, go to Turin, do the very best job you can do. God doesn't tell us in advance what the plan is, but one day you'll know. 
And those are the words that kept me on that team. Hmm. Yeah. Well, those are good words. Uh, I, I mean, get a little emotional just <clears throat> telling the story. And, and obviously here we are over 40 years later. Yeah. 44 years later. And, uh, you know, when we finished our work in 1981, because I had, I was the official documenting photographer for the team. And because I had 2,700 or so photographs of the men at work during the examination of the shroud, I could never completely disengage because the photographs were in demand by other researchers, uh, team members, uh, magazines, television production companies. So I could never completely disengage, but I never really felt that I had completed what I had begun. It wasn't until 1995 that I became convinced by the scientific evidence, which I had complete access to because of being a member of the team. Um, it was only then in 95 that I fully became convinced the shroud had to be authentic. And shortly after I reached that conclusion, I got a phone call from a friend who said, uh, you know that shroud thing you're involved with? And I said, yeah. And he said, well, you know, it turns out that that's just a photograph made by Leonardo da Vinci. And I thought he was joking. <laughs> I, and I laughed. I said, uh, you know, I'm no expert, but the shroud was being shown publicly 100 years before da Vinci was born. He was a good artist, but he wasn't that good. And I said, where are you getting your information? And he said, well, my wife and I were checking out at the grocery store. And that's what they saw on one of the tabloids. And at that moment, I had this epiphany, if I can call it that. And I wrote on the manila folder on my desk at that moment, while I was still on the phone with him, consider building a website. Because by 95, I was already on the internet, which was populated mostly by tech heads and geeks and computer guys. And we were, you know, people were trading code and uh, <laughs> swapping circuit boards. And it right. wasn't the internet that we know today. And so, uh, but I got on that internet and I realized that I had all this material and all these images and that I could build a website. And so I, uh, this was sort of late 1995, I went out and bought a book on writing HTML code because in those days there were no websites that built websites. There were no people who built websites. And so I, being a geek myself, bought the book, learned to write HTML code, and on January 21st, 1996, Shroud.com went online. And in the end, and I'll say this early in this discussion, that became the fulfillment of the obligation I felt for the privilege of having been in that room. Yeah. Well, yeah, certainly we are going to uh, include a link to that website because I don't even know if maybe you don't even know how many pictures are actually on uh, shroud.com of the shroud of Turin. Well, there's, there's a number of, of pictures of the shroud, obviously, and of our team uh, examining it. Um, and there's also a, um, a place where people who are interested in obtaining the images for their books or their publications or their articles, their scientific papers, there's a uh, Stara Inc image library page where you can, search through about 300 of the images only in thumbnails, but then can request them for use in your projects. So, uh, and I mentioned Stara Inc. That 
uh, I did the website for 14 years out of my own meager funds and till my own meager funds were running low. And I decided that it was important for me to preserve this material and make sure it, la it lasted beyond me. So I formed a 501c3 nonprofit organization called the Shroud of Turin Education and Research Association, Inc. STERA, Inc. is the acronym. And I gave over the website and all the photography and all the other materials that I had collected, legally transferred the ownership of all those materials to our nonprofit who now owns both the website and all the materials that I've collected, plus all the materials that have been collected uh, uh, over the years, uh, the 26 years that we've been online. So do you think it would be fair to say that this is the most studied religious artifact in history? Well, you know, I think that I've heard that quote countless times. Somebody said that um, uh, one, uh, I'm trying to remember the name, uh, the um, one, one uh, government agency once made that claim. Now, I don't know if that's accurate or not, but if you go to shroud.com, and I always tell people, if you're going there, pack a lunch and a snack, you're going to be there for a while. <laughs> but uh, if you look at all the research papers that we've either linked to or published directly, um, all of the books that have been written, there's 16 or 1700 books written on the subject. I would say that it certainly qualifies to be in that category of amongst the most studied archaeological artifacts in human history, yes. So you did mention, uh, what's the analyzer called again? VP8 stands for Vector Processor 8-Bit, which means that it has a very limited grayscale of only eight levels of gray compared to the millions of uh, levels of grayscale co or color that we have on our uh, computer displays today. So it was a rather crude and coarse image compared to what we can do with computers today but it did reveal that property. And so the VP8 became significant in the history of the shroud because it verified for the first time using a scientific instrument that the shroud's image is encoded with spatial or depth information, topographic information, which some people refer to as 3D. It's not exactly 3D, but very similar to what a 3D image would look like. Now, wasn't that analyzer uh, created by NASA? No, that uh, that was one one reporter wrote that about 40 years ago, and that's been perpetuated over the years, had nothing to do with NASA. NASA had their own imaging technologies uh, and proprietary images. Remember, everything NASA did had to be brought down from uh, a space probe of some sort. It came down as uh, ones and zeros, and they had to put it back together once the uh, data arrived here on, on the planet. So uh, NASA didn't use a VP-8, although that's been misreported probably a million times in the last 40 years. Wow. Yeah, that's interesting because I had always thought that because that's what I've always been told. That's correct. And I've been trying to dispel that for about 40 years. But look, NASA had two of our team members were NASA scientists, imaging scientists. So the importance of NASA on our team, uh, let's face it, the guy who ran those four programs I mentioned earlier for NASA, he was my hero on the team. Here I am a technical photographer. And here's NASA's head of imaging on all these important uh, early uh, uh, solar system probes. And, you know, for me, uh, he was my hero on that team, Don, 
Don Lennon. He's the guy who kept me on the team, as I mentioned earlier. Right. So what are some of the other unique kinds of tests that have been done scientifically to the shroud over the years? Well, uh, I can, I'll refer to specifically those tests that were done by our team. Sure. Um, and there were a number of photographers on our team. And remember, we were the first team ever given permission to perform an in-depth series of non-destructive tests on the shroud. No one ever before us was given that opportunity and no one since has been given that opportunity. So we were a rather unique in a unique position. And so the test, because our primary function and purpose was to determine how the image was formed, we needed to use every uh, imaging technology available to us to help determine what was on that cloth and characterize its chemistry and its physics and how it might've gotten there. Uh, and so we had tests like ultraviolet fluorescence photography and reflectance photography. Uh, we did photomicroscopy, photographs through microscopes. We did x-radiography of the shroud. Uh, we did infrared imaging of the shroud. So all of these various imaging techniques, some of which were quite new in 1978 and have been further refined over the last 44 years, um, but we had state-of-the-art and spectral analyses, of course. So uh, we had the finest spectral instruments available on the planet to us. Those were produced by or manufactured by a company uh, uh, called, I'm not forgetting their name now, um, but the, uh, the company that manufactured the finest spectral instruments in the world, the two founders of the company, a husband and wife team of scientists, were on our team, the Gilberts. And so uh, we had the very finest instruments circa 1978 that money could buy, although we didn't have to buy them. We volunteered the equipment. Uh, none of us were paid for our involvement in this. Our expenses were covered, hotels and meals and uh, transportation, um, but that was it. Nobody was paid for their time. We all did this on a voluntary basis because we felt this was important enough that we would dedicate our time and donate our time to participating in this project, recognizing, I think all of us understood that this was a rather historic moment. Uh, and our goal was simply to determine and answer a simple question, how is the image formed? And so those were the tests that were performed. Um, and you can find all the peer reviewed scientific papers that were generated by our data. Once we spent the five days and nights in Turin examining the shroud, came back and spent the next three years reducing the data, evaluating it, writing it into papers and sub submitting it to the finest peer-reviewed scientific journals of the day, applied optics and journals of that caliber. And, um, and our work then was published in that. And all of those papers are now readily available on shroud.com. And I always tell everybody that if you're interested in the shroud and you want to start to do some research on it, start with the data taken directly from the cloth by our team in 1978, because that data is the foundation of all the research that's come since then. Uh, would you say 
that there are elements to the shroud that are still beyond the explanation of science? Well, it's interesting. Uh, it's a good question because I remember our purpose was to answer a sim- simple question. How does the image form? Well, we came back and we're able to not exactly answer the question. We can't tell you what it is. We couldn't determine what it is because when we got the chemistry right, the physics was wrong. And when we got the physics right, the chemistry seemed to be wrong. But we could tell you what it's not. We proved, and you won't hear me use that word very often, but we proved the shroud is not a painting and that nothing has been added to that cloth to create the image. We proved that the shroud is not a scorch, which was one of the theories that had been proposed that somebody took a beautiful metal statue of Jesus, heated it up and scorched the image onto the cloth. We proved that wasn't true. And one of the other uh, theories was, well, it was actually made photographically by perhaps Leonardo da Vinci. Well, we proved that that wasn't correct because not anywhere on that cloth is there one trace of silver or silver salts that would have been necessary to create a light sensitive emulsion, which of course didn't exist back in medieval times anyway. The first documented photographic negative was made in 1826 by a Frenchman named Nietzschefor Nietzsche and his negative is still in a museum, I believe in Texas somewhere. You can uh, Wikipedia it and you can actually see that first photographic image. So we know the shroud wasn't made photographically. There was no silver anywhere on that cloth. And if you understand the old analog photographic process, uh, because there's still people who make that claim, once you use, once you've exposed the and processed the image to make it visible, then you use what we call fixer to remove the unused silver not necessary for the image. But that means if it had been made photographically, we would have found massive amounts of silver in the image areas and less so in the non-image areas. We found zero silver anywhere on the shroud and some of our tests were accurate down to one part per billion. So from my standpoint, we proved it's not a photograph. We proved it's not a scorch because You know, there are burns and scorches on the shroud from a fire in 1532, documented. We know the exact date of that fire. So we used ultraviolet fluorescence photography on those scorches. And every documented scorch, which is the result of a high temperature event, fluoresced in the red when using UV fluorescence photography. The background of the cloth fluoresced a sort of yellow green, and the image did not fluoresce at all and quenched the fluorescence of the background, proving that the image was not the result of a high temperature event. The shroud obviously has many unique features, which one of the most stunning is this image that appears, I'm I'm guessing the only way to see it is through the lens of photography. So... You can actually see the image on the shroud when it's on public display, but it's very subtle. It's only Mm -hmm. maybe 20% darker than the background at its darkest point. So photography, which allows us to increase the contrast, and of course now digitally we can do that, but in the old days it was in the darkroom, we can increase the contrast, which means the photographic version of the shroud, which can be enhanced so that the image pops more out of the background uh, is much easier to see than the image that's on the cloth itself. 
You have to remember that the very first photograph of the shroud was made in 1898 by a gentleman named Secundo Pia, who was a lawyer, had to have this great big view camera, you know, great big box of a camera, had to climb a big scaffolding, had to photograph the shroud through thick glass. And his first result, when he looked at his photo negative, he realized that what was on the shroud had the properties of a photographic negative. And when you photograph it onto a glass plate, in his case, the resulting glass plate where the lights and darks were reversed made it much easier to see than what was on the cloth itself. So he published those photographs and was immediately accused of some form of fraud. It wasn't until 1931 when the shroud was photographed for the second time that confirmed all of the conclusions drawn by the original photographer, Secundo Pia. And now, of course, uh, our team did our photography and there's been photographs made since. And the information that's on the shroud is subtle. And the photographic um, photographs made of that of the shroud uh, can reveal the data that would be very hard to see with your eyes. It's still all there, but it's much more subtle and much more visible on a photographically uh, produced plate or, or negative. I've always wondered, and I don't know how long it takes to, to develop glass plates uh, for, for photography, but I wonder what was going through Secunda Pia's mind when he first saw the image uh, as we have seen it uh, many times now today. Sure. Actually, you know, he, he wrote about that. Now, it, it depending, I, I can't speak to the developer combination that he might have been using back in 1898, but I can tell you that um, processing a sheet of film uh, in the analog world, once films became very popular and, and you know, Kodak made different films for different uh, uh, pro uh, requirements, um, it might take six or seven or 10 minutes, depending on the film, depending on the developer, depending on the type of film even. Uh, but what Secundo Pia wrote was, once he processed and fixed his glass plate, he took it to the window and opened the shutters to hold up this glass plate and look at it. And it happened to be a close-up that he had made of the face of the man of the shroud. And he said that he almost dropped the glass plate. And his comment was that I was looking into the face of the Lord. Mm. Those were his, his words that he wrote. So it obviously had a major impact on him. And remember, he's the first one ever to see this. Now we're all familiar with that dark background light image of the shroud that's been published a million times around the world. But he was the first to see it. And I can understand why he almost dropped his glass plate. That would have come as a great shock to him. Mm -hmm. Well, many listening are undoubtedly skeptical regarding this religious artifact for various reasons. You were once chief among skeptics as it relates to the shroud. What can you tell us about your first encounter with the relic? Well, you know, I, when they first asked me to be on the team, of course, and as the team formed up, we had access to some of the photographs made in 1931 by Giuseppe Henriet, the man who verified what Secundo Pia in 1898 had said. He verified that with his more, uh, more recent than photographs. Um, from my standpoint, um, I was a skeptic, totally. And I thought, you know, hey, we'll get to Turin, we'll see the paint, we'll see the brushstrokes, we'll come home, free trip to Italy, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and then the day that they brought the shroud into the room in the Royal Palace of Turin, where we examined it, 
Uh, we photographers always carry around with us a, t- a 10x magnifier or a loop in our pockets. That's just common for photographers, at least in the analog days. So once the shroud was brought into the room and unveiled before us, I immediately whipped out my 10x magnifier and I started looking in the image. I was looking for paint. I was looking for pigment. I was looking for binder, something that was, see, you know, where I could see something had been applied to that cloth to create the image. And I have to be honest with you, probably within the first 15 or 20 minutes of that very first night that we had the shroud before us, uh, I knew pretty quickly this couldn't be a painting. There was no paint on it. You can't have a painting if there's no paint. And so even though I felt that in my initial viewing of the cloth, uh, it wasn't until all our data was con- you know, con- collected and we concluded all our work three years later and published the work into peer-reviewed journals where the evidence was there, the data is there, the raw data is available that shows that there's no paint or pigment on that cloth, eliminating it being an artwork completely. Well, in the 1980s, the headlines all around the world labeled the shroud a medieval fake based on the now infamous carbon-14 dating tests that were conducted. What can you tell us about those tests and how would you respond to those who say that this is some kind of monastic medieval invention? Well, uh, I guess uh, let me answer the last part first. I tell them they're wrong. How about that? (laughs) (laughs) That's the easy answer. The, The hard part of the answer is this. Okay. And Let's give a little background to the listener here. 1988, three laboratories, Oxford, Zurich, and Arizona, were given the opportunity to radiocarbon date uh, samples taken from the shroud. Uh, When the samples were cut, and and let me back up and just remind everybody that we spent 17 months in planning our tests before we ever left to go to Turin to do our examination of the cloth over those five days and nights. Given that as a background, when they went to select a portion of the shroud to be cut away for radiocarbon dating, they spent an hour and a half standing over it and arguing as to where to take the sample. Uh, Our team had each test down to every in five minute increments. So we were absolutely on a schedule and we knew exactly what we were going to do at every stage of our testing. And these guys argued for an hour and a half as to where to take the sample from, which we found to be somewhat disturbing just to begin with. Then they took a strip from one edge next to a seam, not far from scorches and water stains. And they took that strip and they cut it out and they cut that strip in half and took one half and set it aside as a reserve piece. And the other half of that strip was divided into thirds by weight and delivered to the three laboratories. Well, it turns out that the three laboratories had, prior to the event, had uh, had a conference and gotten together and developed a protocol. And that protocol said, number one, this would be a blind study. They wouldn't know which sample came from the shroud. Number two, they would do a chemical analysis of each sample prior to starting the actual carbon dating process to make sure that what they had, that they knew what they had there. So a chemical analysis was called for by their own protocol. Well, turns out that once they were given the samples, only one of them had a herringbone weave, which is distinctive of the shroud. So they immediately knew which sample came 
from the shroud. So there you go, there goes the blind study. Uh, and because they knew which one came from the shroud, they said, well, since we already knew which one came from the shroud, we felt it wasn't necessary to do the chemical analysis. And this was part of their own protocol and they ignored that as well. So they do their testing. They come up with a, a range of dates from what is it, uh, 1260 to 1325 or whatever it is. I don't remember. 1390, I think. 1390. Okay. So a big, long range of dates. They come up with the range of dates and declare the shroud as a fake. Well, some of us who had been studying the shroud for some time by then realized that there was something wrong with the radiocarbon date. But, you know, I'm a photographer. I'm not a physicist. I'm not qualified to challenge the experts of radiocarbon dating. But there was something wrong because there's a manuscript, an illuminated, illustrated manuscript in Hungary called the Hungarian Prey Codex. And it shows an illustration of Jesus, hands, a naked Jesus, by the way, which uh, Christian artists have never depicted Jesus naked. They've always shown him with a modesty cloth of some sort. But this illustration, this illuminated manuscript, shows Jesus naked with his hands crossed over the body, just as we see on the shroud. We see a, a, an effort to duplicate the zigzag pattern of the herringbone weave. And we see a set of the L-shaped burn holes that have been in the shroud since prior to the 1532 fire that put all the big burns and scorches on it. Those L-shaped burn holes existed well before that fire. And this gentleman, whoever illuminated that manuscript, probably a monk, uh, had obviously seen the shroud because he included those L-shaped burn holes as well. Uh, also, the man of the shroud, the thumbs aren't visible on his hands. Now, whether they were retracted because of the crucifixion nails or just were hidden by the front of the hand itself doesn't matter. What you see on the shroud are only the fingers, not the thumbs. And in this artist depiction, you see only the fingers and not the thumbs. So all these correlations to the actual shroud, but those L-shaped burn holes especially, um, are unique to the shroud. And so we knew, and by the way, the date of that is 1192, about 75, 80 years earlier than the earliest possible carbon date given by the three labs. Well, so those of us who knew about this Hungarian prey codex knew there was something wrong with radiocarbon dating, but you know, <laughs> go say that publicly and everybody's just gonna laugh at you because like uh, DNA analysis today, now radiocarbon dating is like the holy grail of science. Never mind the fact that uh, radiocarbon dating can be wrong. There are plenty of reasons where radiocarbon dating can be incorrect. And now here's the real problem. They released these results. And in 2000, two researchers, Joe Marino and Sue Benford, got photographs from this uh, Swiss laboratory of the samples they had received of the shroud and took them to three different textile experts, two here in the United States, matter of fact, two in Ohio, and one in Ireland, Thomas Ferguson, Irish linen, the definitive worldwide experts on linen. The, each of the three independent of each other, textile experts, looked at those photographs and said, there's something different. Someone has manipulated and somebody has messed with this. This has been manipulated, rewoven, and whoever did it knew what they were doing. It would take only an expert to even detect it. 
Well, when the first textile expert in Ohio said that, Ben Marino went, they said, thank you, and went to another one. Same results. And none of these people knew they were looking at a piece of the Shroud of Turin, by the way. So they said, after two, the Ohio experts said that, they went to Thomas Ferguson Irish Linen, and that's the woman there who is the world-renowned expert on linen, said, this looks like an example of French invisible reweaving. And this was something developed in the court of France at the time the shroud happened to be in France. What a coincidence. And it was designed initially to repair tapestries that were imaged on both sides because typically reweaving the outside view is perfect, but the back has threads hanging from it. Doesn't matter. Nobody sees it. But these tapestries had to be done so because they were imaged on both sides of the tapestry, they had to develop a technique of reweaving that would show no visible reweaving on either side. And so this is the first time any of us had heard of the term French invisible reweaving. And so that was the theory that Benford Marino put out. And they presented this in a paper in 2000 at a conference in Italy. And I was, I'm always in the front row with my Nikon photographing the speakers. And when I heard this paper, they said that the reason the carbon dating was skewed was because new material had been sewn into the cloth in that area, skewing the date to a much later date. Well, that was the first explanation for the radiocarbon dating that didn't require me to believe that some magical science that hasn't been discovered yet occurred or something you know, outside of the scientific arena might've occurred. This was something plausible that you don't need to be a physicist to understand. So I immediately said to them, look, um, let me publish that on shroud.com. And they agreed. So I published it on shroud.com. Now, earlier I mentioned Ray Rogers, the lead chemist on the STIRP team on our team from Los Alamos National Labs. And when I published that, within, I don't know, a day or so of my putting it on the internet, I got a phone call from Ray and he was yelling at me what kind of stuff are you putting on your website? These people aren't scientists. They're the lunatic fringe and they only use their eyes and they didn't use chemistry. Well, he was a chemist. So he thought if only chemistry could answer the question. And then he said to me, look, I have a sample that was given to me in 1978 by Professor Reyes. And it was taken from just below where the radiocarbon sample was taken from. He says, and I have that in my safe and I've never done anything with it. He says, you give me five minutes and I'm gonna prove these people were wrong. Well, about an hour and a half later, the phone rang and it was Ray Rogers again. And this time he was much more sedate and quiet and calm. And he said, well, I don't believe it. I said, what Ray? So, what did Ray Rogers conclude? Had there been French invisible reweaving done to the Shroud of Turin? Join me next Friday for the answer as I continue my interview with professional photographer Barry Schwartz. If you'd like to know more about the Shroud of Turin, please visit Barry's website www.shroud.com. There you will find extensive photographs, articles, and information concerning the Shroud along with a timeline of the artifact's history from 1359 to the present. 
If you are enjoying these podcasts, please give the show a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you'd like to support the show, please follow the link in the show description, where for $5 a month you can get monthly, long-form bonus episodes. If you have questions or comments, please send me an email at thislatehourpodcast at gmail.com or visit our Twitter at Casey Knowlton or the Facebook page This Late Hour. Thank you so much for joining me for this fifth episode of Season 2 of This Late Hour on our first installment of this three-part special on the Shroud of Turin. Stay on the alert, dear Christian. Until next time, God bless. Oh, man, man,